0: We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the ninth chapter, the book of Romans and the ninth chapter this morning. Now we'll be reading and then preaching on verses one through five, Romans chapter nine, verses one through five, as we continue in our verse-by-verse exposition through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Here the Apostle Paul writes, under inspiration of the Spirit, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. We thank you for bringing us here in your kind brought providence to hear your word preached today and we would ask lord for the work of your holy spirit that he would guide our hearts this morning that he would still our hearts that he would enable us to concentrate on this passage and to learn its meaning and that he would help us to make application of these words this morning in such a way that we as christians and we as a congregation grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, and our lives are transformed by his power. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Brethren, as we saw last week in Paul's conclusion to Romans chapter 8, there are many good reasons for us to feel confident in God's redemptive purposes for us. For not only has God assured us that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, but we are also assured that we are the beneficiaries of that golden chain of redemption that is grounded in God's predestinating love and ends with our glorification. And because you and I as believers are held securely, by a golden chain of redemption that cannot be broken and we are held securely by an unfailing love from Christ which we cannot be separated from, we have no reason whatsoever to question the certainty of our salvation. We have no reason to question or to doubt God's choice of us. For the evidence of our election by grace is made manifest by the faith that God has created in us and that God continues to nurture in us. And as Paul ended chapter 8, we got a clear sense of how how confident, how joyful Paul was in presenting these truths to his readers, which includes us. For who could declare, as Paul did back at the end of Romans 8, that absolutely nothing can separate us, absolutely nothing can remove us from the love of Christ without feelings of gratitude and appreciation for the grace and the mercy of Christ. And so it is not a reading between the lines of Scripture to, to suggest that Paul's heart as he pinned the final words of Romans chapter 8 was uplifted and encouraged by the spiritual good that God showers on His people, and by the assurances that He has graciously communicated these good things to us through the Spirit. And we who are also the recipients of these good gifts are are not to be criticized if we too find ourselves elated and full of joy over the good things that God has in store for us. For God does have some amazing things in store for us, for us who possess God-given faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. However, now as we come to Romans chapter 9, Paul's attention turns to something that was very dear to his heart as well, and that being the spiritual state of his own countrymen his kinsmen according to the flesh. For as a loyal Hebrew trained in the traditions of Israel, Paul was well-versed in the history of his people. Paul was fully aware of the covenantal promises God had made to the Israelites as the descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs. In fact, Paul knew that his ancestors had been afforded a very unique place and privilege in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes, and he longed to see his kinsmen, according to the flesh, come to a true understanding of what it meant to be a Jew through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, you'll recall that Paul declared back in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who is inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. And so Paul was proud to identify with his people He longed to see them saved. He longed to see a spiritual transformation taking place in their lives. And he believed that he, Paul, was proof that God would redeem from among the physical descendants of Abraham a multitude for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And yet, as we will see this morning, Paul was also painfully aware that the overwhelming majority within Israel not only rejected Christ as their Messiah, but they remained zealous in ignorance and they refused the righteousness that God demanded of them through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul declares this in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, which Lord willing we'll get to eventually, because Paul was not in the dark about the sad spiritual state of his kinsmen, but rather Paul was grieved over it. And therefore, brethren, as Paul reflected upon the blessings that accompanied God's sovereign choice of men in salvation, and as Paul considered the blessings that were forfeited and withheld in the providence of God because of Israel's unbelief. He could not help but give voice to his great heaviness of heart to give voice to his great heaviness of heart. For not only were Paul's natural affections stirred up as a result of a genuine concern for their physical well-being, but he was even more burdened by the fact that they were, through their unbelief and rebellion, hardened against the gospel. They were hardened against the one, namely Christ, who could save them so Paul begins this ninth chapter of Romans in a way that might seem strange after such a joyous rehearsal of God's victory at the end of chapter eight, but in a way that also reveals the honesty, the integrity, and the intensity of his feelings for his fellow kinsmen. In fact, as we examine Paul's words here, especially in verse 1 of Romans 9 this morning, it becomes clear that Paul is speaking here as if he were testifying under oath in a court of law. I want you to notice that he's speaking here as though he's testifying in a court of law under oath. Paul wants to provide sufficient evidence that what he is declaring is factual reliable, and an accurate expression of his own heart. Men cannot see the heart, but the Holy Spirit can. Paul wants us to see that the Holy Spirit will bear witness to what he is saying. Let us note here in verse 1 that Paul first speaks to his own honesty in this matter of the heart. For in matters of our hearts, which are, by the way, very wicked, our hearts are wicked and who can know them, it is possible sometimes to exaggerate our feelings about a matter. It is possible sometimes to twist the truth in an effort to make our own case sound more convincing. But here Paul assures us that these words that he is speaking concerning his kinsmen are not an exaggeration on his part. They are not creatively conceived merely to win sympathy for his people, but rather Paul's words here are guided by the truth as revealed in Scripture, and his words are centered in Christ Jesus. Paul writes here in verse 1 of chapter 9, notice this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. For Paul wanted his readers, he wanted you and I to know That the truth, as he understood it, and as Christ had revealed it to him, was behind Paul's claims. Then secondly, Paul speaks of his own integrity in what he is saying here. And Paul states here in verse 1, I am not lying. And of course, those who knew the Apostle Paul well knew that Paul had no problem with lying Paul had always spoke truthfully throughout his ministry to the churches. Paul's integrity was never justly questioned. However, given that Paul is likely seeing himself as one who is testifying in a court of law, Paul wanted to state plainly, Paul wanted to state for the record, That his roots were not, excuse me, his words were not rooted in exaggeration. His words are not rooted in deception, but they are factually and reliably related to the truth or to the burden that is on his heart. So like a witness in a legal courtroom today who pledges to give his testimony and that he will only tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Paul declares here in verse one that his motivation was not dishonest or deceptive, but his motivation is entirely truthful. You'll see why all this is so relevant in a few moments. Not only was Paul honest And truthful in terms of his motivation when it came to writing these things, but Paul also had the blessings and the benefits of a clear conscience before God, a clear conscience before God for Paul writes here in verse one, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And this was further proof that Paul's testimony here was a reliable record of his own experience and his own affections under divine grace. For our conscience alone is not a reliable witness on all matters, but when our conscience is bound by Scripture and it does not condemn us for violating the law of God, it should be accepted as truthful and reliable. And this was the role that Paul's conscience was playing here as he expressed his burden. And how does Paul describe his spiritual burden for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Well, Paul writes here in verse 2, I want you to pay very careful attention to this verse, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And needless to say, these were not merely passing emotions, That Paul was experiencing, but this sorrow, this anguish were part of a abiding heaviness, a burden that Paul felt, a burden that Paul carried with him in every thought and in every memory of his kinsmen according to the flesh. For as Paul meditated on the sad spiritual state of his people, he was moved with great sorrow. For again, Paul longed to see them included in the true fold of God in Christ. And as Paul pondered the real possibility that many of them, whom he called brothers after the flesh, would ultimately be cut off and rejected by God through unbelief, Paul felt an anguish that ran deeper than mere sadness. For Paul's love and compassion for his kinsmen was genuine it was unwavering, and yet Paul was unable to affect the spiritual change that was needed for his kinsmen to come to faith in Christ. And so Paul wrestled under this burden, which would not grant him a moment's rest or peace, as long as his fellow kinsmen were outside of saving grace. And surely all of us here this morning who have already tasted of the goodness of God through salvation in Jesus Christ, know something, know some degree of this spiritual burden that Paul describes here in verse 2 for his own people. For no doubt, there are individuals, there are loved ones in all of our lives who are not presently believers in Jesus Christ. And this is a source of great sorrow to each of us. And if we were honest before God, honest before our own conscience, honest before the Word of God, we would have to admit that there are times when we feel an unceasing anguish, whenever we ponder the possibility that our loved ones, those we call family members, brothers, kinsmen, may enter into a graceless and priceless eternity forever separated from God. And yet this burden that we feel for them is not a curse. It is not a curse to us, but it is a profound blessing instead. Because this burden that we feel moves us to intercede for our loved ones with an intensity and a fervor that we would not otherwise have. Brethren, I pray, I trust that we are praying for our unsaved loved ones, for our unsaved friends without ceasing, even making mention of our burden for them, even as Paul does. the fact that we pray for them, the fact that we are burdened for them is evidence that God is at work. I would suggest to you that God is at work in Paul's burden. Paul was burdened by the Spirit. God is at work in our burden. God has given us a burden for them if indeed we are burdened. In fact, Paul doesn't mention his prayers for his kinsmen here in Romans 9, but he does over in Romans 10 and verse 1 where he declares, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. And I cannot think this morning of a more loving act that we can have towards those who are lost than to daily pray and to pray earnestly for them. And yet, in the case of Paul, we see that his burden also led him to wish for something that was not possible. Hear me. His burden also led him to wish for something that was not possible, but which demonstrated the extent to which he was willing to sacrifice his own blessings for the spiritual good of others notice what paul says here in verse 3 of romans 9 for i could wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh and i ask you this morning was this desire in paul opposed to the spirit of the gospel Was this desire in Paul dishonoring to the grace of God in any way? Most certainly not. Paul's not suggesting here that his own sacrifice could have merited their salvation. Paul's not saying here that his selfless actions could somehow eliminate the need for saving grace in their lives, but rather Paul's declaring here in verse 3 that his desire for their spiritual good, for their salvation, was so great that it eclipsed his own personal desire to know and to experience a salvation that excluded them. In fact, in this sense, Paul's wish for their salvation, rather than his own, was a loving wish. Given that Paul was willing to lay down his own life, his own spiritual acceptance, his own spiritual security in exchange for their spiritual good. Not only that, but this wish on Paul's part here also revealed his true heart as a spiritual shepherd as well. For a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Is that not right? A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so it really should not surprise us that the Apostle Paul, like other faithful shepherds before him, was willing to be accursed from God so that others in the fold, or who he wished would be in the fold, might be accepted in fact, some Bible commentators have pointed to Paul's striking similarity here to to Moses in this respect, who we considered in Sunday school in a similar narrative this morning for when Moses, the shepherd of Israel, was confronted with the unbelief and rebellion of the children of Israel in Exodus 32, and he feared that they would be consumed for worshiping the golden calf. Moses prayed in verses 31 and 32 Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, addressing the Lord, Moses says, If you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book which you have written. And these words express, in essence, the same wish that the Apostle Paul had. And so, like Moses, Paul expresses a radical, sacrificial wish here in verse 3, which God would never permit due to his redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ, but it was a wish that demonstrated how much Paul was willing to put the needs of others whom he loved before his own. And in this sense, it was a wish that speaks to that kind of heart that loves its neighbor and wishes him good then not only do we see the honesty, the integrity, the intensity behind Paul's burden for his unbelieving kinsmen, but we also find here in the rest of our text, verses 4 and 5 of Romans 9, the reasons why Paul believed that their unbelief and their lost estate was so tragic. And believe me, brethren, it was tragic. Of course, the lost estate of all men is tragic as well. Notice here, Paul lists a number of privileges that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, had received in the kindness of God that should have led them to repentance and faith. In fact, you may recall that the Apostle Paul asked the Jews a question back in Romans Chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? For their refusal to repent and to believe in the gospel was manifest proof that mere spiritual privileges alone are not a guarantee that we are accepted and approved of God. Mere spiritual privileges alone are not a guarantee that one is accepted and approved of God. And if a person trusts in these privileges or feels entitled to God's favor simply because they have or enjoy certain privileges, then they are not only ignorant of the grace of God in Christ, but they are deceived as to the true spiritual state of their souls. So the fact that Paul's kinsmen, according to the flesh, possess these spiritual privileges, but they did not repent, nor did they submit to Christ as a sign of their belief, grieved Paul deeply. And what were these spiritual privileges that they had? Well, I want you to notice this morning that Paul lists eight privileges. Eight privileges. And let me just mention and comment on them very briefly before I close. First, Paul mentions that they were Israelites. Israelites. They were Israelites, his kinsmen according to the flesh. And this simply means, this simply emphasizes the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham, and more specifically, they were of the offspring of Jacob, whose name had been changed to Israel. Because they were of the offspring of Israel, they were given a unique place in redemptive history a very unique place. And yet merely because they had Israel as their father after the flesh did not ensure their salvation. Just because Israel was their father after the flesh did not ensure that they would be redeemed. And of course the same could be said of any individual today whose father walked with God and yet this individual does not. In fact, it grieves me, brethren, as a pastor, when I sometimes witness to lost people and they tell me that their hope is placed in someone within their own family, maybe a grandfather or a father who was faithful to God, and they feel entitled to God's favor because of someone within their own family, your grandfather's faith will not save you. Your father's faith, your grandmother's faith will not save you. You may have privileges because of their faith. The blessings of God may have trickled down or showered down on you because of what they did, but that is not the assurance that you're saved. Then, secondly, Paul states that to them belonged the adoption to Paul's kinsmen in the flesh, belong the adoption. And most likely, Paul's not referring here to spiritual adoption because being of the offspring of Israel never entitled them to acceptance with God through Christ. But rather, Paul is referring here to those things which were related to their external inheritance, such as the promises that entitled them to the physical land of Canaan. Canaan was promised by God to the Israelites and yet those promises never guaranteed that the Israelites would enter into the celestial city of God by faith. Then thirdly, Paul mentions here in verse four of Romans nine that the Israelites by way of privilege received the glory. I find this one especially interesting. Maybe you will as well. They received the glory, and by this most likely is a reference to the fact that God had manifested His glory among them repeatedly throughout their history. For first in the tabernacle, and then in the temple, especially in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the visible splendor of God had been revealed and displayed again and again, so that the Israelites could say that God had moved among them. And yet having God among them on many occasions was not a guarantee, was not the assurance that they would fear God and serve him. And let me just say to you this morning, the same is true today. Men can claim that the glory and power of God has been revealed in them Men can claim that the power and glory of God has been revealed in their lives, and yet that is no guarantee that they will come to true faith in Jesus Christ. No guarantee. In fact, Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, that many will say to him, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, did you not move among us? Did we not see your glory manifested? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for an individual, a race of people can claim that God is with them. And yet Christ's assessment may be entirely different. Then fourthly, the Apostle Paul states here in verse 4 that the Israelites were privileged because to them were the covenants. To them were the covenants. And most likely Paul is referring here to the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants since they were the principal covenants given to Israel and they held out special privileges to Israel if the people obeyed them. And yet simply receiving these covenants and being under their provisions was not a guarantee that a man would receive what those covenants ultimately pointed to. And that is the need for redemption to Christ. In fact, These covenants, at their best, simply prepared the Israelites for the gospel. But these covenants that I just mentioned were not the equivalent of the gospel, which can only be received through saving faith in Christ. Then, fifthly, Paul states that the Israelites had been uniquely blessed through the giving of the law. Through the giving of the law, for the law revealed to the Israelites the moral character of God. In fact, we talked about that in Sunday school this morning as well. And through the law came the knowledge of sin, which was a good thing, which was a blessing. And yet, as we have already considered back in Romans 3 and Romans 4, no man, not even a descendant of Israel, can be justified through the deeds of the law. To trust in the law for one's justification is to deny one's need for Christ. Then sixthly, Paul mentions here in verse 4 that the Israelites were privileged because to them was given the proper way to worship. The proper way to worship for while other nations were worshiping false gods and incurring wrath, the Israelites were blessed to have their ceremonial and sacrificial system of worship which honored the one true God and which ultimately pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. And yet, while Israel's worship pointed them away from and out of pagan idolatry, the children of Israel either failed to observe God's worship properly, or they trusted in their forms of worship rather than in the one who was at the very center of their worship, Christ. In fact, Israel demonstrated that it's possible to follow the letter of worship and yet not worship in the manner that God has commanded. Did you hear that? It's possible to follow the letter of worship, and yet not worship in the way or manner that God has created. Then, seventhly, Paul states here at the end of verse 4, that to the Israelites were given the promises the promises. And no doubt Paul has in mind here, not the promises concerning the land, not the promise of Israel's occupation of Canaan, but the promises of the coming Messiah and of his future kingdom. For interwoven through the institution of the covenants and in the giving of the Mosaic law, God gave Israel glimpses of the Messiah in scripture. And he foretold of the delights that Christ would bring to his flock. And to those who had the grace to hear these promises, they were received with great joy. And yet many heard them and did not appropriate them by faith. For they were eager to quote the promises. They were eager to claim the promises, but they were not willing to submit to the God who gave the promises. And of course, the same is true today. The same is true today. Many are quick to claim heaven. In fact, when I witness to people in the community, there are very few who do not claim heaven for one reason or another, and yet they are not willing to serve the Christ of heaven. How can that be? It cannot be.
1: How can they not be willing to serve
0: Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? To love Christ is to love heaven. To love heaven is to love Christ. And then eighthly, lastly, Paul mentions here in verse 5 that the Israelites had the wonderful privilege of being that nation which was fathered by the patriarchs, and from which the Messiah, who is God, was revealed. For Paul declares to his readers here in this verse, verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, who are they, the heroes of our faith. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. By the way, could there be a clearer statement here that Christ is God? There could not be a clearer statement, brethren. All this debate over the deity of Christ can be settled by simply looking here at verse 5. The Christ who is God over all. Needless to say, this very last privilege the apostle mentions here is the greatest The greatest privilege, think about it, what greater privilege could there be than to be the chosen nation out of which the Son of Righteousness appears, to be the people from whom Christ, who is God, who took on flesh and blood for us, chose to live and walk among, to teach and to shepherd, to give his life a ransom for many. And yet Israel did not recognize who Christ was. They did not understand the extent of his rule over all. Remember the phrase, God over all. They did not know the blessing of knowing and serving him. And because of this, Paul agonized under a heavy burden. Oh, brethren, may we not be so spiritually blind as Israel was to miss who Jesus Christ really is, the true God incarnate and the blessed one forever. And may we not only receive him ourselves, but may we help others to do the same. And so by the grace of God, may we continue to have a burden for our kinsmen according to the flesh, for our family members, for our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, for those who we come into contact to in the grace and providence of God. May our burden lead us to pray for them, to intercede for them earnestly, to ask God to grant them faith and repentance, to open their hearts to the truth. And may we be eager and ready to share that truth, to preach that truth, to proclaim that truth to them so that God might be pleased to grant them saving faith. Oh, God, give us a burden. Give us a burden, a gospel burden, for the furtherance of the gospel. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this testimony of the Apostle Paul. For as we begin this ninth chapter, which will address some heady and important theological themes, we see first the heart of Paul as he wrestled with the needs of his own people. He was truly a shepherd and a pastor at heart. And I pray that we would have the same kind of heart. That as we dive into the doctrine of election and predestination and even reprobation in the future, that we would not see these doctrines apart from the reality of people's lives, but that we would understand that this truth that you have shared with us, that you have given to us, must be applied to the lives of people for you to be glorified. So give us grace. Give us help. Teach us this morning by your Spirit. Give us grace. Give us courage to obey your word, we pray. In Jesus' blessed name.